Well, I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, we're going to be looking this morning specifically at verses 18 to 22. I wasn't sure whether to continue in Mark and to preach the passage that we're looking at this morning, primarily due to the fact that this passage is fundamentally about celebration and rejoicing. It would seem strange to teach on something like that under our current circumstances. But the more I've looked at this text, I'm actually convinced it's very timely that we would look at this passage this morning. And so let me read for you um, from Mark chapter 2, verses 15 to 22, though we're going to be looking specifically at verses 18 to 22, but I want to read from verse 15 just to give us context. So this is what Mark records for us. And as he, that is Jesus, reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts, on, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins." But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's pray. Fathers, we look at your word now. We ask that by your spirit you would illumine our minds to understand. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive your truth this morning. That we might be conformed to your word and that we might love Christ all the more. We pray this for his glory and for the good of your people. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I'm pretty convinced that the majority of people who object to Christianity, they don't actually object to Christianity, but a distorted understanding of Christianity. For example, I think a lot of people, though this is an extreme example, a lot of people tend to think that there's this angry, grumpy, deity, this God who's trying to prevent our happiness and will smite us if we in any way pursue happiness and pleasure. I'm always amazed by people who aren't followers of Jesus, who, who have convictions and beliefs about God and about Jesus, despite the fact that they've never even read, for example, the four historical documents that speak of Jesus. 
You see, if they did, if they, for example, just took time to read the four Gospels, they would be amazed with the person that they read about. They might not conclude that Jesus is God, but, but his character, his actions, his, his words would stand out. His courage, his gentleness, his compassion, his strength, his mercy, his fearlessness, his wisdom. These things would all stand out to a person who would read the Gospels for the first time. And I think this morning's passage is one of those passages that stand out, where Jesus stands out. That, that Jesus' words and understanding of things may shock you. And the reason is this. This passage from verses 18 to 22, it challenges us in what we tend to consider to be spiritual. So the first thing I want us to see in this passage is that there is a time to be solemn and a time to rejoice. Or you could say there is a time to fast and a time to feast. We're told in verse 18 that John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people, we're, we're not sure who the people are, but, but they came to Jesus with a question. And they, they asked him in verse 18, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Of course, this question comes in light of verses 15 and 17. In verses 15 and 17, Jesus is sitting down with a meal for a meal in Levi's home with, with all these other sinners who have become followers with him and, and also his disciples. And they are, in one sense, partying. They are celebrating. And so here are John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees. They're fasting while Jesus' disciples are having a good old time enjoying a meal together. The wine is flowing. The, the food is out. They are having a celebration. And the people who, who see this are asking, why is that? Why does it look like John's disciples and the Pharisees are so serious about religion and devotion, but your disciples, Jesus, are all about having a good time. You see, it's interesting, the Pharisees, they commanded two fasts per week, though nowhere in the scriptures are Jews commanded to fast two times a week. In fact, there's actually only one command in the scriptures from God regarding fasting, and that was on the Day of Atonement, the people were called to fast. And that's in Leviticus 16. You see, the Pharisees, they were adding to God's commands, but they were, but they were doing more than just adding to God's commands. By commanding two fasts per week, they were telling the people what a godly life looks like. Basically, a life of solemnness and seriousness. Godliness is equated in their minds with solemnness and sorrow and seriousness. That's why they're so committed to fasting. The idea of joy, laughter, happiness, celebration, that's worldly. You see, if you're not miserable, then you're not doing what God demands. Have you ever been around self-professing Christians like that? It makes Jesus and Christianity look very unattractive. 
It presents God as this grumpy old man who's lost all of his joy. But Jesus' response to their question demonstrates that he's out to challenge this held notion by the Pharisees, by the people. So they ask that question, and, and Jesus responds in verse 19. Look at what he says in verse 19. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. You see, Jesus' answer to the people is essentially this. Who fasts when the wedding feast has begun? Of course my disciples aren't fasting. The bridegroom has arrived. Redemption history has reached its next age. Salvation has come. The new creation is breaking in, specifically in the person of Jesus. Forgiveness of sins are being granted. I'm here. Of course my disciples are not fasting. This isn't a time for fasting and solemnness. This is a time to celebrate and to dance and to laugh. In the Jewish tradition... After a couple were married, there would be a week of celebration. And in that week, the wedding guests, the friends, would be a part of that week of celebration. There would be no fasting. They wouldn't work. They would simply celebrate with the bridegroom and the bride. And so Jesus is saying, my arrival as the bridegroom is the beginning of a wedding feast. It is a time for celebration. This is not a time for mourning and seriousness and solemnness. This is a time to leap for joy. It's a time to kill the fattened calf and to allow the wine to flow. In other words, Jesus is flipping the idea of what religion's supposed to be on its head. With the coming of Jesus, the, the bridegroom, the proper response is rejoicing and, and celebration because salvation has appeared. Do you remember how Jesus defines salvation in the parable of the talents? There's two faithful servants in that parable, and Jesus rewards those two faithful servants. And here is the reward of their faithfulness. He says this, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Here it is. Enter into the joy of your master. In other words, the reward of the Christian, the goal of the Christian, the, the reward that Christ gives to his people who have been faithful is we are brought into his very own joy. His very own happiness. You see, everyone would agree that, that the statement, God is love, is theologically true. But there is also another theological statement that is absolutely true, just as much as God is love. And that is this, God is happy. He is the source of all joy. Psalm 1611 the psalmist writes, you make known to me the path of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. You remember in Exodus 24, which I read earlier, 
It's a very intense scene. God has descended upon Mount Sinai. The people are at the bottom of the mountain. The clouds and the smoke and the, the, the fire and the, the lightning are all there, conveying God's presence is there. It's a terrifying scene, but, but in that passage that I read, God invites Moses and the 70 elders to come up into the mountain. And what baffles me, what blows my mind away when I read that passage is how it ends. Even though there's this seriousness because they have entered into the presence of a holy God, we're told that they beheld God and ate and drank. They sat down and had a meal in the presence of God. You see, if you've primarily thought of the Christian life through the lens of solemnness and seriousness, you have a distorted idea of the God of Christianity. Don't get me wrong. There's a place for solemnness and seriousness in the Christian life. But that's not what ought to define the Christian life. The true mark of, of Christianity is what I would call serious joy. It, it takes the realities of this world seriously. It takes the commands of God seriously. And one of the commands of God is for us to be a rejoicing, celebratory people. Out of all the peoples of the world, the church of Jesus Christ should be a celebratory, rejoicing people. Because we're recipients of God's amazing grace. This is why there, there is so much singing in Christianity. You won't find this in other religions. This is why when we gather as a church, though there are seasons for sorrow and solemnness because of this fallen world, we experience the realities of this fallen world. But the dominant cry of our souls should be joy and not sadness. And dare I say, we ought to sing like we're truly celebrating. It amazes me sometimes when I see Christians singing, it looks like they have very little interest in delighting in God. We ought to lift our voices and express ourselves in worship. We ought to feel the freedom to raise our hands and to truly express our joy in God. You see, people need to see that we're not just singing, but that we're also worshiping with joy and gladness. This is where I think some of our white European folk could learn a little bit from our African, Caribbean, Latino brothers and sisters. But there's also a place, I think, for our African, Caribbean, Latino brothers and sisters to, to learn from our white European brothers and sisters about solemnness. We each bring a dynamic to the table, and we need to learn from one another. You see, God is more joyful and happy than any of us are. Why? Because he's never aged, nor is he tainted by sin? So Jesus' answer to their question is, the bridegroom is here, therefore my disciples will feast and celebrate. So then we need to ask, is there a place for fasting as Christians today? The bridegroom has come, salvation has been accomplished, is there any need to fast then? Well, the answer is yes. Jesus assumes 
that his disciples will fast. He says this in the next verse, in verse 20. Look at verse 20 with me. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now this verse is debated amongst scholars and commentators. What is Jesus referring to when he says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, and what does he mean when he says, and then they will fast in that day? Well, most argue, and I think that they're right, that this is a reference to Jesus being taken from the disciples and crucified. Their joy, remember, is tied to being in his presence. But he will be suddenly taken from them. He will be crucified and killed. He will be buried. And it's then that they will know sorrow. And it's in that day that they will fast. In other words, Jesus is saying, I think, that there's a time for fasting and sorrow, and there's a time for celebrating and feasting. The, the disciples are, are celebrating and not fasting because Jesus is present, but they will soon enough begin to fast when he's taken from them. But what about us as modern-day Christians? Is there a place for fasting? solemnness and sorrow in the Christian life now? I would answer yes. Despite the fact that all the benefits of the new covenant in Christ are ours, we still haven't experienced the fullness of those benefits while we remain in this corruptible fallen world. And so yes, we rejoice because the bridegroom is ours. We are not just his guests, but we are his bride. But we also grieve because we long for the bridegroom to take his bride home, to make all things new. In fact, I think circumstances like the one we are currently in are opportunities for us to fast and be sorrowful and to ask God to show mercy. I cannot command that of anyone. I can suggest it. Nor do I think that if you decide to do such a thing, you are somehow more godly than the Christian who doesn't. But our, our, our current circumstances, at bare minimum, should cause us to examine our lives and to ask God to search our hearts, to test us, and to see if there be any offensive way in us. But also hear this. There will be a day when fasting shall be no more. The day is coming when we will all sit at the banquet of the Lamb, and He will sit at the head of the table and in His radiance and beauty, and there will be food and wine foods we've never tasted before, wines like no other, and he will look upon each of us, and his words to us will be this, enjoy and be satisfied. We will feast and drink and dance and laugh. His joy will be our joy, and all of this will be a result of the work of the Lamb through his death where he bore our sin in his body. We have a glorious day awaiting us 
where never again will, will there be a need for fasting, for it will be an ongoing celebration forever and ever. You're probably familiar with the book, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. And there's this scene in the book as Aslan is on the move and the word begins to spread and the, the snow begins to melt away. And the white witch is um, destined or, or is trying to do everything she can to intervene what Aslan is doing. She wants to, to intervene with, with everything that he's trying to accomplish. And so she gets on her sleigh and, and she continues to travel. And as she's traveling, the snow is melting away. But she comes across this table of celebration. There are these Narnian creatures and they, they have a table set up and there is a meal and they are dancing and laughing and rejoicing. And she is overcome with rage. And in her rage, she of course turns them all into stone. She's not simply angry because they are celebrating the fact that Aslan is on the move. She is also angry at the fact that they are celebrating. They are celebrating. You see, if you are like the white witch, always against joy, laughter, celebration, feasting in the Christian life, then you don't understand Christianity. Aslan is on the move, and him being on the move should create in us a reality of joy and laughter and dance and celebration and food. So we've seen so far that there is a time to fast, a time to be solemn and sorrowful, but fundamentally we are a people who rejoice and celebrate because we belong to the bridegroom. The second thing I want us to see in this passage is this. The new is too great for the old. Jesus continues in his conversation. And as he continues his argument, he uses these two analogies, or in a sense, these two many parables to further his point. The first is verse 21, where he says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. What's Jesus conveying here with, with this mini parable, so to speak? Well, the idea is this. The religious practices of the religious leaders cannot bear what Christ is about to do. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting because they were looking for the coming kingdom, a day of judgment and a day of deliverance. And Jesus is saying, my disciples aren't fasting because the kingdom has actually already arrived. The dawn of the new age has begun because I've arrived. With the coming of Christ, everything is about to shift. Everything is about to change. The old systems of religion will not be great enough to embrace what Christ is and will do. As Kent Hughes says, the new fabric which Christ brings cannot be interwoven with the tired fibers of old religion. It will simply tear it apart. 
Now, Jesus also uses a more powerful analogy in verse 22, where he says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. In the ancient culture, the skins of goats would, would be stripped off almost whole, and then they, would, then they would be partly tanned for the purpose of being filled with new wine. This would allow for the fermenting of the new wine to expand. But if the new wine was put into old wineskins, it would burst the wineskins because the wineskins wine had lost their flexibility. The old wineskins couldn't handle the new wine. See, the coming of the bridegroom as new wine is going to tear the old wineskins of previous religious structures. A new age has dawned with the coming of Christ, the bridegroom, and the old systems will not be able to bear it. If the Pharisees are committed to their old wineskins, they won't be able to receive the new wine that Christ brings. But it wasn't just their religious systems that were like old wineskins, but also their hearts. Their hardened hearts were unbending, hard as rock, unable to expand and stretch, just like an old wineskin. And because of this, they were unable to absorb the new wine that Christ brings. We live in a society today that is fully immersed in the idea of what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. That is, simply because something is new or modern, it therefore must be better than what was before. New is always better than old, according to progressive thinkers. New ideas are better. Modern thinkers are, are more enlightened than pre-modern thinkers. Well, in some, case, in some cases, new is better than old. For example, we have made incredible technological advancements. No one would deny that new is better than old. But there's not a soul on earth who would say, for example, that modern poetry is better than classical poetry. New doesn't always mean better. But in this case, with this passage, with what Jesus says here, it does mean that it's better. Not because it's new in and of itself, but because Jesus is better and superior to all the old religious systems. He comes, one, to destroy the wrong systems established by the Pharisees, but he also comes to fulfill the old systems of the Old Testament. This is why in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews refers to Jesus' ministry and the new covenant as better. As he says in Hebrews 8.6, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. This is why Jesus' disciples are not fasting. 
Because Christ has come and his new work is greater than anything of old. He will bring about the redemption that God had planned from long ago. And his work has and will bring about a celebration like no other. And it's all because of Jesus. It's all because of his work of salvation on the cross on our behalf. It's all because of his presence that we as the people of God will forever be satisfied and be a happy people. And as we wait for that glorious day, as we wait for his return, where he will complete all that he started, we simply cry, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Father, take your word now and seal it upon our minds and our hearts. Accomplish your purposes. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.